Stand by for a start. Racing at $210,000 at Isella Dunn Pulldown. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And as we know, the FBAA exists to develop, maintain and improve the standards of integrity and services for bloodstock agents across Australia. And through the FBAA, you can access expert advice that you know comes from an ethical basis of trade. And that is all important, no matter what you're buying, especially thoroughbreds. Joining me today to discuss the hot topics of the moment are Louis Lemaitre from Astute Bloodstock. I love that name, Louis. It rolls off my tongue. And Dave Mee from Pinhook Bloodstock International. Gentlemen, thanks for being here with me on episode 12. How are you both and what on earth are you up to at the moment? Good morning, Mick. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Louis. Good morning, Shark. Yearling sales are all over. At this point, there's one more sale to go, I guess the national sale on the Gold Coast, but they're pretty much done and dusted. Uh, what's a bloodstock agent in Australia doing at this time of year, Louis? Look, um, Mick, I think it's one of the busiest time of the year for me personally, because it's the time where your attention is divided on lots of different topics. You know, like uh, yeah, the yearling sales is behind us, but we're still selling down a couple of yearlings that I bought on spec. Then you've got the winning sales, the mare sales, plus we're doing matings um, for, for clients and also starting to think about looking at the form of young horses appearing on the scene in Europe. So um, it's, it's great, but uh, it's full on. It is full on, especially when those late nights chime in with the European racing and uh, you know, we've seen Guineas and Derby trials run in, in recent weeks and Guineas run in the UK. There's plenty happening overseas, plenty happening, though, on the local market, including, I guess, the first run of the, the broodmare sales. We've seen some weanling sales in Sydney with Inglis and we saw the chairman sale, which was another raging success for Inglis and, and heading, headlining the results from that was shot the bar, a multiple group one winner who stopped the bidding at $2.7 million. It seems like a lot of money to me, Louis, but as you were explaining to me overnight, on a global scale, $2.7 million Australian might actually be cheap. Louis, I think it is. First, she was an outstanding mayor. She's by, she's by fantastic standard. She was a double group one winner, you know, fantastic mayor. Uh, to own probably a future foundation broodmare for someone. But yeah, when you compare to what what those first is in Europe, there's very few mares like this going through auction and they, they often make more money. And we're talking in, in guineas or pounds. And, you know, last year I was in, in Kentucky for the, for the broodmare sales there, Faisal and Killen and mares of that profile were easily making three, four, five million uh, US dollars. So whilst 2.7 money, it's million dollars is a lot of money on a global scale, maybe not so much. And of course, Tom Magner and Coolmore, the successful buyers there with Shout the Bar 2.7, a record price paid at that sale for that horse. But it's not all just about broodmares and big numbers and weanling sales and everything else there's a lot going on sort of around the bloodstock scene particularly when you look at a broader picture and i guess the health 
the booming market that we have here and we're enjoying here in Australia at the moment. But things are getting more expensive, gentlemen. And, and Dave, I wanted to get your opinion. Financial risk in a, in a market like this, is that something you act, actively are discussing with your clients? You know, I, I guess you have to have a price on every horse, but is there a point where even you and your clients look at each other and think, this is just crazy, this is too much for us? Totally. I mean, uh, the, the case in point was on Friday night at the chairman's, you know, look, it's the, everyone has an opinion and uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but there was, you know, there's, there's horses there, mares there that, um, you know, clients we had an eye on, but uh, they just made, in some cases, like 100% more than we valued them. So, um, you know, uh, the a lot of people look at it that the, the safest place in the market is at the top end, so, and everybody's trying to upgrade their stock. Um, but, you know, you've got to be, you know, you, you've got to know how much you, you spend at your clients. You know, when we, you identify horses that you think it's going to be in, in your client's uh, uh, budget and the price bracket. Uh, and some of, in some cases, you know, some of the horses that we valued at perhaps 300 were making five or 600. So, you know, you, you generally go one or two more bids than, than perhaps what you wanted to. But when they're making that kind of money, it's, um, it's it can be a bit of a head scratcher. But, you know, as I say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. People value them at that, that rate. Well, so be it. That's fine. It's probably a situation, too, when a lot of breeders, you know, particularly those that are in the yearling trade game, they've had a couple of good years and they've probably got a little bit extra cash in their pockets. So, you know, for them, going that extra three or four bids at the moment in this market, it it might not be a stretch or a sort of stretch that it has been in previous years. Well, I think at the moment, like we've just had the English week and we've got the uh, Magic Millions and the Great Southern. It's, um, yeah, I'm tipping personally, it'll be another record sale. As you say, a lot of breeders and owners have done particularly well. They were in rude health with prize money and the commercial marketplace. Uh, and a lot of the money within the game, it's recycled cash. You know, like when, when a person sell, sells a horse, uh, for good money, generally they go out and buy one or two more. So it's going to be super competitive. Um, you know, there's probably uh, uh, the, the, the demand probably outweighs the supply. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of few people out there with tax problems. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm expecting the next few weeks to be very, very competitive. I was in Sydney for that broodmare sale and was talking to Tubba Williams, a man who we all know really well, of course, He's got a position at Newgate uh, and he's been around the industry for quite a long time. And I, I put the question to him. I said, can things slow down? You know, can we see a correction? Like the same as what they're, I guess, the analysts are tipping in the real estate sector if we get an interest rate rise or two and change of government perhaps. And and Tupper was really strong on, on the fact that he didn't think it would slow down. He said that racing was somewhat protected and he pointed to, the really strong prize money as a, a great supporter of that argument. Louis, what, what are your views? Do you think there's a correction in the wings at all for the bloodstock industry? Look, I'm not a, I'm not a great economist in any way, but I, I do think that people will start traveling again and traveling has become a lot more expensive. I think the Australians have been locked up in Australia for two, three years now. And uh, there's, a, there's people who just want to move, want to get away, want to go and do something else, want to go and, you know, and and the industry will lose a bit of that captive audience uh, that we had in the last two years during the winter, particularly because Aussie Australians love to travel in July, August when when it's winter here. So, yeah, I, I do think there might be a correction. 
uh, a slight correction. I'm not worried about it, but I think potential change of government will um, will have an impact. The raise in interest rate will have an impact, and yeah. But but fundamentally, I think the industry is extremely solid, and there's a lot of wealthy people within the industry. Um, so look, I'm pretty positive, and I think if we've also became 10% cheaper than what they are now, it wouldn't be a bad thing at all. I wouldn't be complaining. <laughs> I don't think many people on the end of the, uh, the buyer's end would be complaining at that point. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. What I was interested about the chairman's sale is for the first time ever, I've seen mayors that have had three or four foals, some of which have done nothing or weren't necessarily commercial yearlings, but but they were good-looking, well-bred mares. And to me, some of them looked like proven failures, but they were in fall again to a sexy commercial stallion. And those mares were making really big money. And I was really surprised by that because the first time I've seen, you know, like if you've got a a leading stud farm that's decided to sell a broodmare after the first three foals, um, you've got to ask yourself, why are they getting rid of it? And because the demand's so high, and I think it's probably where another reason why you need an agent there to, you know, having seen all the yearlings out of that mare at all the other sales and having, you know, following races daily, you can assess, well, that's just a risk. You know, yes, that one horse might come good, but I think a lot of it looked very risky purchase for me for mares that I exposed. Yeah, can I just add, add to the, what Louis said? It's a very good point. And I think, you know, given a plug for the FBA agents, uh, you know, a lot of us have a certain amount of success. Um, but I think an agent in, those, in that situation, Louis, like I think we as a collective group, we can offer perspective to clients because, as you say, as, uh, as we all get around the sales and inspect a lot of horses through the years, I mean, you know, we have notes and comments on foals that have actually been produced out of these certain mares. So we can actually offer perspective. Um, and it's the, ex- you, you can't, money, it's very difficult to buy that experience. You know, if you've seen the last three foals out of a mare and then she's offered for sale, whether it be in a fold of schnitzel or a, another stallion, I mean, you, you can actually provide perspective on her true value. And ultimately, it's all about finding the best possible value for your clients. And and at the start of the program, we, we discussed what you guys are up to at the moment. And part of that is uh, mare matings and planning that next visit to a stallion for a broodmare. Uh, many of uh, which are purchased out of that chairman's sale, people will be planning at the moment. 
Stallion fees have been announced. Most of the majors have got their fees out there for the upcoming season. And I guess there were a few eyebrows raised at some of the, the values of first season stallions that seem to be quite high and quite strong. Uh, it brings us to a conversation around stallion selection and whether charging into those newcomers, those first season uh, lads, first time out is the way to go or, or is there a better way to play? Louis, you've got a couple of stallions that you've noticed in the last season, I think, that have now got plenty of attention, but perhaps 12 months ago they didn't. Yeah, that's right, Shark. Well, first, when you've got a large broodmare portfolio, you've got to spread your risk around. Stiff, you know, not every not every mare is going to be suited to the top-end stallions, and you've got to spread your risk and sort of place your mares where you think it's, it's the safest play. But what I do find interesting is, is you know, in this country, because we've got... In our top three stallions, two of them are not Group One winners. So I think there's been a bit of a move where farms were quite happy to take a punt on a well-bred horse if he's good-looking and and if he's got a, a nice pedigree and, and if he if he if he looked like he was going to be a Group One horse. But what I found really interesting is like you look at horses like I, I feel that form is more important than than looks and pedigree, and and I just think like two recent examples would be Rebel Dane and Maurice. You know, Rebel Day, both not necessarily fashionably bred and not necessarily the most popular horses when they retired. I mean, particularly Rebel Day. And the Rebel Day was, was a horse that was, you know, very hard to place and, and went to a couple of studs. And, and I just wonder why the market sort of almost sort of ignored Rebel Day. And when you come, it's easy to say in hindsight, but at the end of the day, it was a very good racehorse. He won two group one. He was tough. He was certainly trained on. And and he's very unfashionably bred. And you look at Maurice. Maurice is he was a, he was a phenomenal racehorse. He was unfashionably bred. And both of these horses just they're doing the job. They they look like they're both going to be very good stallions. So, yeah, just maybe a readjustment. In my thinking, anyway, I think form is the most important factor when I'm selecting a stallion. Selecting a stallion, look, primarily I agree with Louis that it's, you know, it's race form that counts, but I think you need to take it back a bit. You have to ask yourself uh, as an agent and your client, what do you, what's your actual motive? Do you breed into race or you breed into trade? Look, it, it appears to be less and less breeder breeders, guys who are willing to develop families. Like the, the best, you know, the most obvious case in point is obviously Godolphin, where they, they nurture and develop families over many generations. There's less of those people. Dave, what about... Your view, uh, I know people breeding to stallions are always going to want it, uh, as fees as low as they can possibly get, but there's another side of the uh, the coin there, isn't it, with the people that are owning and managing the stallions? Uh, yes, the old stallion fee annual debate. Um, yeah, look, um, I think when you look at, when you take a step back, the people who own the stallions, it's amazing when you, you, your mindset changes when you go from being a renter to a landlord, I guess. These horses are worth a lot of money. So the people that own them um, and manage them, um, essentially they're trying to do, the, you know, it's an asset and they're trying to um, do the best thing for the horse while also um, doing the best thing for the, for the owners of the horse, the stakeholders. So they're sitting, trying to set the price in the market that they can basically get the best book of mares and, and earn the most income. And, that, and that's just a commercial decision. That's fine. But my view on uh, selecting stallions on price is that if you don't like the price, don't go to the stallion, go to the next one. It's it's um, it's just simple supply and demand. So 
Um, that's my view. Louis, what do you think? Yeah, you know, you could say that the stud fees are a bit too dear, but at the end of the day, the expensive stands are the first one to fill up. So I think um, people want the opportunity to breed the very best stallions at the very end. Whilst we're in a booming market and the yelling market's so strong, um, you know, people are happy to, to sort of breed, uh, pay a lot of money to breed to the best stallions too. Because generally, if you get a nice type and if you made the right mare to, to the right stallion, you're going to get well rewarded the yelling sale. So um, I'm, uh, I'm not surprised at all by the, the prices of certain stallions. And if, if anything, I think there's one stallion in the top three that's actually quite good value this year. Who's that? <laughs> yeah, who's that, Louis? You can't hang that bait out there and not expect someone to buy it. <laughs> what about a region tycoon? My couple of mares at 140, I think it's a good deal. What about broodmare sires, gentlemen? Are they as important as people make out to be? Louis, should we be looking at the broodmare sire tables and just focusing in on the, the top 10 performers there when we're buying broodmares? Yeah, I think you can focus on broodmare sire if you want. Personally, I, I once again, I'm, I'm all about form over pedigree. And, and I think I'd much rather buy a fast, a good-looking fast mare by, by a lesser stallion than a slow mare by a good stallion. And I just did an interesting study leading up to the broodmare sale about broodmare sale specifically. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I looked at the group one winners of the last three years. And, I'm, uh, and there's a lot of very, very good horses with, with, a, with a very unknown broodmare sale. And including Black Caviar, Wings, Dubawi, Nature Street, Very Elegant, Lope de Vega, PP, Emilia's Jewel, She's Extreme, Shelby 66, Amicus Jewish, Star Spangled Banner, Street Boss, Exceeding Excel, Smart Missile. So you think, <laughs> you know, that the list goes on. The trapeze, trapeze artist, there's just, you know, right. I think we're in an industry where you've just got to assess the horse in front of you, uh, you know, with his pluses and minus and, and go with your gut. But I'm not one to get bogged down with hard rules. My position is like I, I when I look at a horse, I feel like would I like to own this horse? Yes or no, and assess the risk and then keep an open mind. I think is very important because hard rules do not work in this game. What about you, Dave? What's your view? On broodmare size, well, look, I what I like a a, a, a nice yearling out of a Zabel mare and a Costa de Lago mare, probably, but I think. When you look at a horse, I mean, the broodmare sire only contributes, it's the bloodlines of the genetics coming through it only, only supply 25% of that horse you're looking at. So, and the other thing about broodmare sire, it's hard to define uh, successful broodmare sires over other horses. I mean, I guess it's, what is it, 5% to runners to stakes winners is, is maybe deemed successful. But I think you have to bear in mind broodmare sires are generally very good racehorses to be standing at stud in the first place. So I'm a firm believer in finding the type first and then looking at the breeding and the genetic uh, input. Uh, and as I say, um, I'm not too fussed about breeding. So as long as the overall pedigree, the rating is strong. Uh, I, I worked for Patrick Hogan when I was a younger man and he always believed in seeing the best, send a mare with the best blood of the stallions uh, on the stallions, uh, stallion female side. So if that makes sense, a bit, of, a bit of a tongue twister, the best blood of the stallions female line. So you try and duplicate the best blood 
of uh, Sir Tristram or, um, you know, capitalist uh, female side. That was his belief and it worked very well for him. So in short, broodmare size, I'm not too hung up on the, on the size as long as the overall pedigree um, uh, produces a decent result. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Breeding seasons and farms and studs and everything else, it's probably worth talking about the anxious times that a lot of those operations have got ahead of them with staff and an ongoing staff shortage. You know, we're starting to see a little bit of international presence starting to filter back into farms and and uh, workers from overseas back in the game, but there still is a shortfall. And when you couple that with torrential downpours for much of 2022, Dave, it makes for some soggy and, and pretty hard work. Totally. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And uh, look, there's a couple of things in and around that. I mean, firstly, I'd probably want to say a big thank you. Uh, while there has been a shortage for staff and, you know, and, and, and training stables and farms, et cetera, a big kudos and thank you to all the staff that are actually doing the work because aid has been a shortfall of staff and so people have probably been working harder and longer hours and especially with this big wet in New South Wales and the eastern seaboard I think you know the staff are you know that we can't um, stress enough how important they are to horse operations so a big thank you to all the guys doing all the heavy lifting um, on the farms and in the stables. Um, the, the, the staffing thing, as you say, uh, there's more uh, inquiries, I think, from overseas, uh, Europe, Irish and English, Kiwis, et cetera, coming here. So that, that's a good thing. I think that'll lessen the load for the, the current staff on the farms. Uh, but it's also affected um, um, things on a bigger level. Karak, as an example, um, they moved from their traditional date from January to March. Uh, this sale season gone, but they're moving back to January. Um, only in part, there's other factors at play there, but I think because of the staff shortage, they couldn't get university students, et cetera, um, to look after the horses properly. So it's, it, can't, it can't be underestimated. So and I know that there's more awareness about trying to educate uh, and develop um, career pathways, and Louis might like to talk about that. Touching on the staff issue, I think the staff issue has actually triggered some really good behaviours particularly from the major farms. Um, I've seen it on social media that like farms like Arrowfield and Coolmore were having open days for kids of the local school, kids of the community, and trying to engage more with the local pony clubs. And I think that is an extremely good move for the industry going forward because it's a way of showing how well we look after the horses 
potentially recruiting future staff, changing the perception around welfare, um, you know, and also giving the opportunity for people to maybe follow a horse or become a, a punter, maybe become a race goer. Um, I grew up in the industry and I see it every day. So sometimes maybe we take it for granted, but at the end of the day, our industry is absolutely beautiful and we should be showing it more to the community, not just to our clients. Yeah, it's a great point you make. And I think that flows on across the entire industry, including, you know, race clubs and whatever else. And you look at the success of the Victorian industry for a smaller scale, it's been the picnic racing circuit because it's very grassroots and it's very hands-on and, you know, families and kids are all welcome and it's worked marvellously well. So there's definitely uh, a, a huge benefit to be had by b- bringing people closer to the horse and closer to the participants that are out there doing it every day and so they can share that passion. What you're seeing on race day is the, is the final point of the accomplishment of what's been happening in, in the breeding industry and in, in the, on the farms and in the racing stables. And I think once you have an understanding of what goes on at the farms and in the racing stable, you'll have a lot better appreciation for what's happening on race day. I, I think there's an opportunity to capitalize on that way of thinking. Yeah, I'll just add to that, guys. I think I think the aware, uh, the word a really good word for uh, is the awareness. I think there's it's obviously been uh, an awareness that uh, you know we to develop uh, pathways and educational, um, as you say, Louis. The, the the racing is the shop front window. What goes on behind the scenes in the commercial marketplace, the breeding and the services and the the trading. I mean, it not a lot of people aren't aware of that. So. You know, you've got Lindy Morris, uh, you know, thoroughbred industry careers, um, guys like Steve Grant at Silverdale Farms offering an internship program. This is all good stuff. It's, it's, there's, there's no downside to that. So, um, you know, we're making inroads into trying to develop that side of thing, which is great. Another innovation that I really like in the racing industry, because I used to do it myself when I was a kid, is pony racing. I think it's, um, I think it's a phenomenal initiative uh, by Lindy Morris and thoroughbred industry career. I just think it's just an, an opportunity once again to get kids to understand the horse, to understand how to how to train it, how to care for it, and and it also links the racing industry with the equestrian industry, so that more equestrian people can see a career into the racing industry. Uh, I think it's terrific. I think it's terrific initiative from all aspects, and I think it's going to build a lot of um, goodwill in the industry. There's some great, I guess in situ activations on farms and and on race day that are kind of a little bit more obvious what about some less obvious opportunities louis and i know tourism and racing have sort of gone hand in hand in america with great effect could we do something similar in australia yeah definitely i think so when i was in kentucky in november i sort of uh, saw that there was bus tools traveling around basically the bourbon industry and the stud farm and the breeding industry have teamed up together and said guys Let's work together and offer some tours and, and get people to, to see the best of our states in, in one tour. And so you've got buses and tour operators and they're taking people on tours around the stud farms in the morning and then visiting bourbon distilleries in the afternoon. And I think it's just a, such a clever initiative. And um, it was actually driven by the bourbon industry who, who approached the racing industry with that initiative. And I don't see why we couldn't have the same thing in Australia. Like we, We've got stud farms next to wineries in both New South Wales and Victoria. Um, and 
I think people would love the opportunity to go and 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 discover magnificent stud farms and then stop at one. And that's just one thing. I think it'll be it'll it'll generate new interest for our sport, um, new punters, yeah. new owners, or it, it'll generate new level of participation within our sport. Not necessarily just for ownership, but for maybe staff and just awareness about what the industry really does. Yeah, golf's actually another sport that, you know, ties in with that, especially in that location, the Hunter Valley. I mean, the, the golfing industry, a lot of there's obviously a lot of people play golf and have interest in horses. So that that's another, you know, sort of a tourism-based thing that could work. But um, look, my opportunity that I think is worth, like investigate, worth investigating is actually the use of the land, uh, primarily the racetracks. If you look at racetracks, uh, you know, basically most towns within Australia have a racetrack and it's a fair chunk of land that, that that's at this point in time primarily is probably not being used to best effect. I mean, you, know, you look at Randwick, I mean, that's a, it's a massive bit of um, land there and they're probably one of the, the, the largest ratepayers within the, you know, in the eastern suburbs there. So but, and when you take it down to, you know, like country towns like Orange or Bathurst or, Kuna Barabin, it's it's uh, out out like out bush um, regions. It's um, you know I don't know what the answer is, but I think there's a, there's probably opportunities there to use that land for 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 deriving income and better use for the you know there's a resource there to to complement the, uh, the 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 industry as a whole, like it, whether it's accommodation for staff or there's. Um, development of various industry programs. I mean, the, the, as I say, it's, uh, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but I, I know that there's probably a lot of land could be uh, used um, for the betterment of the industry. What about some pet peeves, boys, before we wind up? You know, and we've, been, we've been pretty positive in today's episode, but I want to just leave with a couple of little short, sharp jabs to the chin. I want to hear a couple of things that are annoying you fellows at the moment in the industry. Louis, do you want to kick off? What's what's your pet peeve for this? Look, it's early track work in Australia. I think it's an absolute joke why people have to get up at three o'clock in the morning. How can we retain good staff, good people in the industry when, you know, it, it's, it's just first, look at it in Sydney. First, they've got to find accommodation in, in the eastern suburbs to run, work at Randwick, which is very hard when you're on a low wage. And plus, you've got to get up at three o'clock. Three, three o'clock in the morning to get your work done. It just doesn't add up. It's not good for the industry. It's not good for mental health. It's not good for young people. Actually, we I think we're driving people out of the industry. I mean, they said that we the important. It's almost like we've put the maintenance of the track first before the it's the before the training of the horses. I mean, the horses should have the priority on where they work, and and the, the track could be maintained at night if they want to. Tractors have light. Horses don't have lights. Uh, floodlights so yeah just i've ridden track work in england america um south africa france and when i came and wrote when i first arrived here 20 years ago i had to ride track work six months in randwick and i hated it because it's just it's just not healthy it uh, it's got to be looked at i know it's been talked about a lot but nothing's been done and i think it's a real issue all the other countries in the world managed to make it happen and we can't i don't know why I'm all for a sleep in. I don't mind that. Uh, that is a pet peeve. Dave, what about you? Uh, look, I'm just sort of taking it back to a basic level. It's um, my pet peeves. One of them is actually slow-mo videos for yearling and weanling sales. When you obviously, 
with the COVID, it's been accelerated the use of promotional videos within a catalogue. Um, guys out there, we want them in real time. Please, slow-mo, no, no slow-mos. It's, um, I want to see a horse in real time, backward, more front and backward shots. Um, so I know a lot of videographers, they're, they're friends of mine out there, but guys, come on, we, we just, I don't know. It's just a personal thing, does my head in. What about the so, uh, little bit of music in the background, Dave? The elephant <laughs> and music, do you enjoy that as well? Does that make you want to bid that extra 100? The funky beats. Um, no, I like bird song, mate. Two Bays Farm do a good one. Uh, but um, no, I like to, someone said, how do you like to look at your horses in silence? So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of the slow mo, personally. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 12. Thank you for listening and thank you very much to Dave Meehan and Louis Lemaitier for joining me on this episode. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing your smiling faces around the sale yard soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you, mate. Thanks a lot. And remember, if you're looking for any advice regarding any bloodstock-related matter, always talk to an expert. To find those experts, visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBAA member.